The Fail On Podcast, episode 019. I've traveled the world. I've seen things I never thought I'd be able to see. I've been able to carve out, you know, good time for myself instead of just trading my time for two to three weeks vacation a year. I've met some fantastic people and I'm grateful. And all of that is sponsored by, you know, an entrepreneurial lifestyle. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes you are destined for more and that failing your way to an inspired life is the only way to get there. Today, we're sitting down with Corey Wirt. Corey is the founder of Digital Blue Moon. That's a boutique digital agency in Toronto that is disrupting the outdated multi-vendor model. Corey's a good friend. He's a brilliant guy, super humble, and has successfully started, built, grown, and exited another digital agency back in 2014. At that time, they were focusing on providing services to only Fortune 500 companies. Corey's incredibly well-respected in this community, in the entrepreneurship community. He sits on several boards and we go deep on why exiting that first company in 2014 was actually the biggest letdown of his life. We'll be discussing why he decided to outsource his first six employees from the Philippines when he first got started, how he was able to get out of a deep depression after selling that first business, and how he completely got blindsided on his latest venture with an untrustworthy partner. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all of the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter that's at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. Hey, Corey, welcome to the Fail On podcast, my man. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. Sweet. So just for a little context, we are in the beautiful city of Toronto right now. Actually, in a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, I guess he called he called it a game room. I don't know if I'd call it a game room. There's a little couch. There and is a, TV. a foosball table. There's a foosball table, and then some creepy looking camera equipment that I wouldn't know if this is a SEO company or. A <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He did call it a game room, not a games room. So it's very appropriate. There's only one game in here. That's a good point. <laughs> good point. I just want to dig into it, man. So you've had some highs and lows as an entrepreneur, absolutely, like, like all of us. But just so we have some context, how did you first get into the world of entrepreneurship? So I've always kind of had like a hustle to me. You know, very young. You know, I would do things like sell gumballs and everything like that to to the kids in my class. But my my first step into entrepreneurship was really around 2008. I was working for a big consumer packaged goods company here in Canada. They did about $6 billion in sales. And I worked in the marketing department there. And I just really saw that there was like a massive shifting trend that was coming. And it really felt like a sweet spot for me in the sense where I knew I loved marketing, but I've always had a fascination for technology in the digital space. And at that time, you know, people were considering digital to be experimental at best. Yeah, still early. 
it was still early for, for the bigger companies, right? The innovators were, were grabbing on and making the most out of it and good for them. And so for me, there was just this disruption that, that was coming. I thought that I was in a good spot with a good knowledge on both sides of the fences and really was never, I was very fortunate to have the job that I had. I did well, but I was never really content working for someone else. You know, to steal a quote from you, actually, you know, you're either working on your dreams or you're working on somebody else's. And so I realized that it was time to take the leap and, and get out there and, and, and take what I knew and try to bring that to the world. Cool, man. I want to actually dig into kind of like the details there because you're working at this company. I mean, did you get, did you get laid off or fired or were you just kind of proactive and like, (laughs) I I want to make something happen? Yeah. (laughs) Funny story, actually. So I was doing well. I was on a fast track. I was moving up the management ranks, you know, good salary. Everything was going really well, but I always had a certain discontent on the speed with which things happen in a big company. You're always waiting for someone to bestow the honor and tap you on the shoulder before you can kind of get to the next level. And while you have to learn to play that game patiently. It's also something that was a constant internal struggle for me. And at that point, you know, I had done a a digital campaign and it was extremely successful and kind of blew the lights out compared to all the more traditional stuff that we were doing. So what were what was that metric? It was what were the metrics based on? Was it based on performance? Like how did you gauge that it blew it out of the blew the others out of the water? So one, the level of insight that we were able to get from that campaign you know, traditional media and traditional marketing, like you sit there, you activate your campaign, and then three months later, you see the, the sales data start to roll in. And then you try to retrospectively connect the dots and figure out what happened. We were able to see immediate traction. We were able to make immediate pivots. It ended up garnering kind of like more social engagement. We ended up doing really well through a contesting promotion. And again, we were able to actually identify a subset of our target base, which we always assumed was X. And we saw that there was this whole other opportunity out there. And for me, it just like the the instant data was something that just immediately kind of like sparked with me. Just so I understand better, is this like a Facebook ad campaign or what, what exactly no, so was it? Like, I remember sitting down and doing a presentation on YouTube to my president. And, and he was like, oh, that's interesting, but I don't think that's ever going to catch on. And this is, this is before uh, Google had even bought YouTube, right? But I remember sitting there and saying, like, this is going to be the future of kind of like video advertising. And, and the cost for which you could do it compared to a traditional media buy Peanuts, for TV right? was insane. Yeah. And so it was literally just kind of like foring into that. Facebook was like, Facebook was still like university Facebook yeah, back then. Yeah, that's true. 08, it was Yeah, it was really kind of before that, but there were all sorts of platforms where you were really starting to see a two-way conversation, right? Like commenting was starting to become a thing. And again, that that instant connection with the consumer was something that you just never really had through traditional marketing. It was always one-way messaging, you know, kind of you vomiting your message on everyone the exact same way where digital really allowed you to connect and forge a relationship and build some loyalty with your customers. And so, measure the and, results. And measure the results and be able to take that and leverage it for insightful, meaningful campaigning down the road, right? There was always this continuous improvement that you could do in the moment with digital data. So yeah, it so was you created st- this campaign at this company, created the campaign. It did really well. 
And for me, just kind of like a light bulb had turned on. You know, I really loved the the marriage of marketing and technology. And I remember sitting down and doing a presentation and showing the results. And this was supposed to be like my moment, right? <laughs> like they were instantly going to make me president of the company. And I just remember it being, you know, that was a great experiment and we weren't going to do that anymore. And for me, I couldn't really understand what was happening. So I literally sulked back to my office. I sat down and, you know, I just looked at it. It was a very risk adverse culture. You know, there was retirement that was on the horizon for a few key players and they didn't want to introduce any risk. They didn't want to rock the boat. No, they just wanted to hit their numbers. They wanted to get their, their bonuses and then they wanted their package at the end of the day. And so I sat there and I realized, I'm like, I'm going to sit here, wait for them to die. (laughs) not literally and then when the when a new team comes like when new management comes in i'm gonna have to sit there and forge the same relationship that i had spent years doing and so i looked at it and i was like i'm like five years out from sitting in the in the seat that i thought i was sitting today in typical kind of entrepreneurial fashion you would say i wrote my resignation letter and handed it in right there and I was just like, I'll figure it out. It was very much the the jump and build the wings on the way down. In hindsight, I may not have done it the same way, but, <laughs> but I'm glad that I did because it was just like, it was that just kind of like fearless step that threw me into a world that honestly I was unprepared for. But if I had tried to baby step my way in, I could have seen that there would have been a thousand excuses I would have fed myself on why not to commit to that. How are you doing financially at this time? Did you have financial resources to kind of hold you over? Yeah, to... like I was like I was making a good salary. I was doing really well in terms of like corporate terms, especially for my age. So I had a little bit banked up. I didn't and, and I thought that that was going to be more than enough to kind of like cushion me. Like, you know, I, I made a, I made a, a brave move, but it wasn't a stupid move. I felt at the time. In hindsight, you know, the the buffer that I thought I had did not last nearly. (laughs) (laughs) And things did not take off as as quickly as I assumed they would. So, you know, could I and should I have banked up a little bit more? Absolutely. But again, like, I feel like it's just part of the learning curve, right? And, and, And getting into a dire position for me was something that really kind of like turned on the jets. See, I'm right there with you, man. I've had a lot of conversations with other entrepreneurs and it's, it's, I almost, I almost feel like I have this conversation with everybody I talk to on here, but it's on one hand you have, you know, people with the burn the ships mentality. And then on the other hand, you have the people with the more practical approach, which yeah. is build the bridge mentality. Yeah. Do a side hustle, right? Yeah. Do it, do it yeah. from 7 PM to 2 AM. Yeah. But I'm right there with you, man. Yeah. I'm a burn the ships guy. No. I, I do good with pressure. Well, and that's just it. And and for me, like like in that moment, like in that pressure, like like a stronger version of me comes out, 100%. and I know that some people are very kind of like security oriented, and the right move may be to do that side hustle for a little bit, right? Like there's two different approaches. I was I was okay with the risk, but I could see how that, and, and I could use that as, a, as an advantage, but I could see how it could also be a crippling effect for some people. So it's really just about figuring out like what you feel you're up for and then live by that. And then when you get that side hustle, when you start to see a little bit success, throw it behind. Because the thing is, it's never going to get the traction. It's never going to get the growth that you would want unless you're committing full time to it. So if it's just about proving that it can be done, that's cool. Do a side hustle on the weekends and the evenings, whatever. But when you see something, go. go. Yeah, totally agree 100%. As you're going with 
free flow marketing, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, so that's the that's the agency, that's the business you started. Yeah. What were your biggest struggles early on? Like you said, you, it didn't take off like you thought it would right off the right out of the gate. Yeah, like for me, the thing is, is like you know, there's this saying like you know what you know, you don't you know what you don't know, mm. but you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I didn't know that I didn't know a lot. <laughs> sure. You know, you, you come out of it and you're like, I'm going to do digital marketing. I'm going to do it for companies. It's really going to help. It's going to move the needle. And that part of it came naturally and it was easy. But then everything else that it takes to run a business, you know, eventually when you have employees, being the HR, right? Like I didn't develop a, a, a leadership team until really late in the game. Like I had a bunch of like, like in the trenches doers. And then I was marketing, I was finance, I was sales, I was president, like, and, and, and for me, it was, again, like, I feel kind of, you know, school of hard knocks has always been my best teacher. I've done the formal education and, and I've got a very expensive piece of paper that sits on the wall. I do nothing in my life that relates to what I learned in school <laughs> totally. at all. But for me, it was really like, just not really going in kind of like eyes wide open. And again, like maybe that's a good thing because it allowed me to step forward fearlessly, also foolishly. But again, like I was able to use that. Like for me, like failing forward is an absolute must. I'm convinced I did everything wrong in that business before I got something right. Did you start up, like how much money did you have to put into that business before you started seeing dollars back? I So I had saved up probably about 50 or 60 and... Yeah. And so that was used, yeah, to like, again, you know, just to kind of get the business up and running. Branding site. Yeah. Do, doing the site, doing the design, getting some marketing materials, doing the presentations. I wasn't pulling a salary for myself yet, but I still had obligations, right? Still needed to eat, still had a mortgage, still had all that stuff. And so a good portion of it was for living. A good portion of it was, was deployed into growing the business. And all of that was gone before I made my first dollar. <laughs> it took a lot longer longer. You know, I think I suffered from what everyone does at the beginning, which is always trying to find kind of like that magic bullet solution that's going to help me land my clients or, you know, give me instantaneous search engine optimization and having a high ranking so people could find me. And, and really, and again, this was not knowing what I didn't know. There were so many different components that were going on that, again, I suffered from shiny object syndrome. And it wasn't until I really chose one service and focused and built a solid presentation on that and had really strong messaging and really understood how to help people. What, Once was, that, what was that service? SEO. Got it. And once I kind of had that, things just started to take off, started to land clients. The singular service allowed me to focus and that started to bring in the revenue, which allowed me to kind of grow and scale the way that I did, where I honestly think, you know, coming out of a big business, the unfortunate part is like numbers get lost on you. Like when you're looking at marketing budgets that are eight, nine figures, like you kind of lose the sense of money a little bit. Like it's, that's just such a big number. And so, you know, coming out of that really made it difficult in the sense where I just didn't know where to focus. I didn't know how to scale properly. I tried to have a big business before I had a small business. I think it's a really interesting point that I think you you made a mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make where they try to create a service that's for everyone yeah. rather than going really, really narrow at Don't first. Don't go niche. Yeah. yeah. If you go, I mean, if you go really narrow at first, it's way easier because yeah. you have your one you're going to have a better offering, right? Yeah. It's going to be much stronger. It's not going to be, you're not going to be trying to provide a service for everybody. Yeah. 
So I think, and you can also deliver what you're selling, which to be honest, in my space, like there are a lot of agencies out there and they're really good at selling, but they don't follow through on fulfillment. It's the biggest problem in our industry. It's why the agency can have a really negative connotation and the number of clients or colleagues that I've sat down and said, yeah, we tried to do the big agency once and it just really didn't work. Like that is so common and it's a constant pain point in our industry. And it's something that you're always battling against, especially when you're in a sales pitch with a company who doesn't necessarily know you that well, right? Because they've, they've almost everyone has, every client that I've had has been burnt before they found me. And so just being able to choose that, fulfill on it, build your reputation around that and and get some income for growth. Like those very simple things set a a solid foundation to allow you to build a really great company. But if you don't do that first, then, you know, you're building with like toothpicks and sticks and and not on a solid foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just thinking back when you were at the corporate job moving into your agency, were you able to take any clients with you from your corporate job that you could take on as clients at the new No, because I like I was on the client side, right? Like if I was on the agency side and I was representing a bunch of clients, it probably would have been a lot easier because if they liked me, I could have said, hey, I'm going to go over here. Right. It's not in direct competition to the agency that I'm leaving because I'm doing a service that they don't provide. And originally that was my pitch. Like when I went out on my own, I my first step was to contact the agencies that I had worked yeah, of with. Course. And say, hey, I want to set up a digital division within your company. And but everyone's like, ah, you know, digital, it's a fad, it's gonna right. go away, right? right? Like <laughs> yeah. anyways. <laughs> and so I was kind of forced to go out on my own because nobody was was really willing to bite. So no, like being on the client side, like I didn't like I couldn't take myself and I was the client. Right. So it was literally starting from scratch, like standing still. Or actually sitting still on the bedroom floor. <laughs> <laughs> when did things really start to take off? In that first business? I'd probably say around the two and a half, three year mark. So like I said, like I'd given myself about six months and I'm like, yeah, by that time I would have replaced my income. I was so far off from that <laughs> forecast. But right around kind of like, like I, I had built like a steady business where I was doing okay. And I had started to pull a little bit of a salary out of the business. But things really kind of turned around two and a half, three years. We participated in a project. We were brought on as a digital provider to an agency of record. So an agency of record is basically like the person who owns the client relationship. And and what you see a lot of the times is they'll fragment out to, to specialist agencies. So you'll have someone do the branding, you'll have someone do the digital component, you'll have someone do the media buying and all different agencies will do that. It's a really convoluted model. And so we were the digital component and that program got put up for an award. And that was that was the gust of wind in the sales. And it was very steady and very rapid growth from that point on. Was it just referrals from other yeah, businesses you, at well, that you, point? Yeah, you just start to get a name, right? And to be honest, like a lot of my success was also like, I don't care what anyone says, like timing and luck is a huge component of business. There weren't a lot of competitors offering what I did. So when businesses did start to pay attention, there's only a handful of providers that were out there offering these services. And most of them weren't good. And you're doing more than SEO at this point, right? You're at doing- this point, we're doing more than SEO. We're starting to get into, you know, like at that point, we were doing a little bit of kind of like online branding and identity identity packages for online. We were doing video marketing. We were into social at that point. We had had kind of like a broader service offering for the digital space. And how big was your team at this point? 
just when, roughly when that started to turn we were probably around 10 okay and it, then when we were all said and done and the exit happened we were around 67 got it and i want to get to that but still i kind of want to give the audience and give us an idea of kind of the growth trajectory and i know it, it took obviously a while to get that first dollar back but when did you hire your first employee the first check that I got. Okay. So money came in. You said I. That's, and, it's a huge, and, it's yeah, a, and and I did. You know, I, I did what I think a lot of people start by doing, which is I outsourced overseas. You know, right around that time, you know, that was becoming a very popular thing within the entrepreneurial four community. Hour work week came out. Four hour, it was right around the time of the four hour work week. And again, it was it was a blessing and a curse at the same time because it allowed me to get help when I really couldn't quite afford it yet. But at the same time, it was also a much larger kind of management exercise than I was anticipating. So where you think you're just going to make your hire, you're going to send kind of like your SOP checklist, just get that done. And you're like, ah, now I have two more hours back in my day. I'm going to read Tim Ferriss's book. It it definitely didn't work out that way. But again, slowly built through the Philippines, to be honest. First six or seven employees were all out of the Philippines. What um, services you use? So I, I tried a bunch, like one, two, three employee. And really, I ended up using Odesk, which is now Upwork. That was really kind of like my key platform. Also dabbled with, with Elance, one of the more popular platforms as well. I just found that the talent over there was a little bit more expensive and out of the range of what I could afford at the time. Totally. So within, within FreeFlow, let's, let's move forward in the, in the timeline a little okay. bit. So two and a half, three years, it really started to take off. What happened once it started really booming? What did the next, because you had the business, what, six years total? Seven? Eight. Eight. Yes, that's okay. half a year. Got it. So take us through from year three through year seven and a half, eight. Again, it was just, <laughs> for a successful company, it's, it's, it's amazing to look back and see how much failure there was in it. For me, you know, kind of like that first spurt of growth was something that, I think we handled well. And to be honest, it was something that was completely from the sense that the type of employees that we had hired required very clear instructions. And so we were very heavily documented in terms of like SOPs and what to do. And so our systems and our process were really solid. And that kind of like fueled and allowed us to kind of put more weight onto the organization because we had the structure to be able to support that. How did you know to that that needed to be built? I didn't. It was one of those things that it was in, in learning how to work best with my team and my employees. It was something that just kind of naturally evolved after trying 10, 15 different approaches. And it just turned out to be kind of like a, a benefit in the sense that that allowed us to take the thinking out of a lot of the grunt work that needed to happen. And when you're removing the thinking from the process, you're actually creating several hours of work in the day that would have been lost. And so that allowed us to kind of like sustain and, and, and be able to survive under the weight of the new growth. As we started to diversify the services even more, as we started to hire quicker than 
well, really, we were hiring as quickly as we could just to keep up with the level of work that we were having. That started to expose that, you know, we're now getting to areas or levels of talent that required a different system or a different structure. It's not a one size fits all. Who are your clients at this point? Are you servicing small business owners? No. So early on, we were getting a lot of work through other agencies for big Fortune 500s. And we were playing a small role in that, but that's where a lot of the work came from. Down the road, I think probably year four, I started to see that there was a lot of, there was a lot of risk in that. Like when you've got 50, 60% of your revenue coming from one client, that client goes away. Like you don't have a business, right? Like you got a client. And so we, and again, just kind of like seeing what was happening online. And we were on the earlier side of kind of like local SEO and local marketing. I know it ended up becoming a a couple of really huge internet marketing launches, which completely destroyed the industry. Thank you. But we started to kind of diversify our client base, got a bunch of of smaller clients that provided the stability and the consistent income. And then the big ones were gravy. That's what allowed us to do really cool shit. Got it. Can I swear? Oh, 100%. Perfect. So <laughs> I've been holding back. Well, uh, I, I'm a swear. Define, so. <laughs> define 100% like really cool shit. What what? Well, that, 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 that's just like, that's when you're sitting there and you've got like really big budgets and you've got a lot of money to either test new things, build software, do really good reward systems for your employees, send them on retreats. Like it just allowed us to build a really solid culture. And again, like when, when the money's flowing, like it's just a really beautiful thing. And, and I think diversifying how we got our revenue, really big kind of like one-off project-based work, which was great, but it was not steady feast and famine model, right? Which is very common for the agencies, but that kind of like that stable base, right? Having, uh, you know, uh, I think we had a couple hundred by the end of it, but having that stable base, like that just made sure that the, the waters were calm and everything else was just gravy and play money. Got it. Towards the end of, towards the end of this business, take us through kind of what happened towards the end. Obviously, yeah. You know, we've talked offline about it. You had a, you had a successful exit. How, yeah. did, how did all of that come about? And then, kind of take us beyond that and what you did after after this business. Well, I think the natural evolution, whenever there's a disruption in any industry, is that all of a sudden the people who are sitting at the top and are feeling the pain the most from the disruption start looking down and figuring out who they can acquire. Right. And and they buy their way out of the problem. Did you have this in mind from the beginning, by the way? To be honest, like I, I you know, I think you walk in like every other entrepreneur that you've seen where they build this massive company and then they sell it for billions of dollars. And, you know, I definitely had an exit plan. It ha- it was probably better than my business plan at the start, but it happened it happened faster than I assumed it would. How early on did you start thinking about this? Was it from out of the gate when you're just- from the gate? Like I always try to figure out before I take my first step, I always try to figure out what's the goalpost that I'm walking towards. And I know that, you know, how you get to the goalpost and the play on the field will change. And you have to, you have to be able to pivot and be nimble with external factors. But I always kind of knew what it was. I wasn't sitting there and trying to build a business that I was going to run into my eighties. You know, like I still have an aspiration to retire by the time 45 and just be able to spend my life the way that I want to. And that, that may be, you know, you know, coaching other entrepreneurs. It may be me sitting on a beach and becoming a fisherman. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> I just know that, you know, I'm, I'm in it with a purpose and, and I love what I do and, and it's got my attention now, but 
I don't think I'm going to sit there and say, man, I wish I didn't retire at 45 on my deathbed. So, <laughs> Sure. So after, after you sold this company, you know, take me through that. I know we've talked offline about this and it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. No, it wasn't. So, you know, what ended up happening, like I said, was the industry started to change and we got gobbled up by a much larger firm. They needed to basically, you know, change the sign and and be in business. And so at that point, you know, I had done a really good job at creating a very good job for myself. I was tied to the company. I didn't move behind the brand fast enough. I was consistently hearing from my clients, we hired you, we want you to be there. And and that really kind of created like a seven day a week, 14, 16 hour a day job. And I was completely burnt out. You know, I think there's also this this illusion that when you work for yourself, you're going to have more time, you're going to be able to work when you want to sure. work. And, <laughs> and if you have the drive of an entrepreneur, just know that that is a complete lie that yeah. you're telling yourself. 100%. I am the worst boss I have ever had. <laughs> I am so harsh. There is no forgiveness. So I was I was completely burnt out. And, and at that point, you know, I really felt like kind of money was my motivator. And there are a variety of reasons for that. But what I found out after exiting the company was that money wasn't the motivator at all. You know, it was what I was striving for, but the blues weren't bluer, greens weren't greener. I didn't wake up happier. So so you had this exit, you had all this money and it just wasn't fulfilling. Is it, that what you're saying? No, yeah. It just didn't fill my cup. And in all reality, I ended up slipping into a very deep depression for the next year. Just because it wasn't what you were hoping to yeah, have at the end of the... You know, it's something like... So one, I think it was a function of, you know, I was definitely very burnt out. I did a horrible job at kind of creating like the the boundaries and, and the recharge moments that, that I now hold sacred in what I do with my day-to-day. And for me, there was a little bit of kind of like that burnout fatigue. But I also realized, or I failed to realize at the time, and I realized after doing some deep work on myself, that my values wasn't really around, you know, the money. It was around helping other people. And so I thought my whole value system was A when it turned out to be B. And, And again, so much of my identity had been tied up in the company I took a lot of pride that like I helped people. Like I felt very fortunate that I was in a position where I could make a good living while providing and helping people earn a better living for them and their families. And so when that was gone, it was amazing how quickly my identity disappeared and how quickly my confidence disappeared. And then you start telling yourself the story that, oh, I could never do that again. Why did you exit? You're a one-hit wonder, blah, 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 blah. And the story just went real negative really fast. And it took a lot of time to kind of like really get to the root of that, why it was happening, why my programming was like that, why my story base was like that. And I just slowly had to kind of like undo that over time and, and fight my way through it. Got it. So take take me to what that time was like. I know it's probably not easy to talk about. You said you're in a deep depression. Yeah. And, you know, even offline, I hope you don't mind me saying this, you know, you even said that you you still don't do a lot of podcasts to this day because you have like an imposter syndrome. A hundred percent. So why? You know, (laughs) let's try to dig into that if you don't mind. Yeah. So digging into it, uh, I was was a very accomplished shithead uh, as a child. (laughs) Sure. My parents always told me to play to, the, to to play to my strengths, and and I bet you they regret that when I was a rebellious thirteen year old, and and so without getting too deep into it, you know, I, I was asked to leave. I lived on the streets for a little bit. I was in a group home for a couple of years. In your teens? 
in my teens, okay. in my early teens. And for me, a lot of kind of like my self-worth, when you have the people who are supposed to love you unconditionally, say we can't deal with you anymore. Mm. And in fairness to them, it was the right thing. Like I, like my actions, what I was doing, I was getting expelled from schools. I was uh, getting in trouble with the law. Like what I was doing was destroying the family and what they did was to protect the family. And so I get that. It took me a long time to be able to see that, but I see it now. And, and to be honest, I'm grateful for, for what they did. But that strips at a very young age, that strips away your confidence, that strips away your self-worth. The people who are supposed to love you unconditionally don't. And it kind of just makes all of that go away. And I've always, like as much work as I've done on that, I carry that still to this day. I'm always amazed when I, when I be sitting there in, in a meeting with a client and I'm doing what just, I think everyone always knows and they're sitting there like, oh my God, this is a great idea. We have to do it. Like those moments, even though there's been a lot of them, they still catch me by surprise. You know, I, I don't think that there's anything overly special about me. I'm not, I, I don't have a, an insanely high IQ. I was a horrible student. Is it part of what drives you though? But, but it is like, there's that, like, I just, I've, I've got a hustle and I've got a work ethic. And because I've seen so much over time, you know, failure, failures are always hard, but I think I've gotten a lot better at, at dealing with them, being okay with them. In fact, one of our core values at the company is fail forward, right? Like don't, don't be afraid to fail, be afraid not to take the lesson from the failure. And that's something that I try to instill because that is a value that I hire against now because we're inevitably going to make mistakes. This is a really difficult industry. It's hard to understand all the nuances of so many different client businesses and things change so quickly. It's like going back to your corporate job where you kind of went outside the box and created a digital campaign and people were okay with the status quo. They weren't okay with failing forward. Well, and that's just it. And most people aren't. Like 95% of the population will take the safe play. They'll take that security. And, and some people view the corporate world as that. It's a safe paycheck. I view that as the riskiest thing because you're not even in control. Right there with you. Right? Yeah. And, and there is no security in that world. If they have a hard year, trust me, the ax is coming down. You're first and, to go. And yet, well, you hope not, but you could be, right? <laughs> well, I mean, employee-wise, that's the biggest expense typically. Yeah. And for me, the appeal of entrepreneurship was always just about like, you know, kind of being the master of your own destiny. Like, If I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail on my terms. I'm going to fail because of something I did, not just because I was sitting in the wrong seat at the wrong time. Right. So I forget what, what your question was. <laughs> Actually, I did too. But, <laughs> but I liked where we're going with it though. So... Okay, so you just to kind of keep the timeline going. Yeah. So you're you're in a rough place. Depression hit. Yeah. How did you get out of that? And then, or I guess, what was kind of the time frame of that lull when you left that business before you started your current business? And did you do it? Were there any oh, in- yeah. businesses in between? No, no, there wasn't. That year of depression was was deep. There were day long stretches where I couldn't even get out of bed. I would wake up in like, and it was almost like clockwork. Every single morning I'd wake up around four, four thirty. My mind would be racing to the point where I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't even process what the thought pattern was in my head. It was just random. And it was a million things all at once. And my day for that year literally consisted of me waking up uncontrollably crying for a couple of hours and then sitting there and and oddly enough the only thing like I couldn't read because my mind was too busy it was always just running the only thing that kind of gave me reprieve was candy crush (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, and I don't even want to. I don't even want to tell you what level I'm on because <laughs> I literally crushed for like a like nine months straight, like for four hours a day. It's embarrassing, but it, it was just it was one of those things that it was it was that distraction it's an outlet, right? Yeah, and so you know, like I I did a lot, man. Like I did therapy. You know, I really reconnected. By that point, I had a really great relationship with my family again. You know, they're they're my biggest support. But I spent a lot of time with with my mom, my dad, my brother, and really it was just getting back into. It's, it, it took a lot of time to even get there, but getting back to doing things that were healthy for me, right? So going back to the gym, meditating when the mind would allow me to meditate, getting back to reading and kind of getting into self-growth, like all of the things that had gone by the wayside because I was so bad at managing healthy time for myself and just literally sacrificed everything. Like I could go to the gym for the hour or I could sit here and just take care of this last minute client request. I always chose the client request. So it was getting it was getting a lot of what was important to me, which is, you know, my family, my close relationships, reconnecting with my friends, all things that had suffered during this time because all of my focus was on the company and getting some healthy habits back in my life and and giving myself space to actually become okay with if I never recreated this success again. That doesn't mean that I didn't have it in the first place. And that doesn't mean that I don't, I don't have value for this world. So it was really just a lot, identifying what my real value system was, not what my ego was telling it, telling me it was. How did you do and it? And then just aligning that. Did you? Therapy, okay, reading. So you... Yeah. Like I, and, and again, leaning on a lot of friends. There were a couple of networks that were just completely, they saved my life. One of the things that I would suggest is if you ever find yourself where you're going through this, or you're going in that state, trust me when I tell you, you're not alone. The first six months, I didn't tell anybody about this. I felt so ashamed that I was feeling this way because I had no reason on paper. If you read my resume, there was no reason for me to be feeling this way. But you lost your identity and you're in that transitional period where you didn't know who you were no. or like what... No. To associate yourself with, right? But I hid what I was going through from everyone that I knew. I withdrew. And that isolation only made it worse. So I remember actually sharing it for the first time with a friend who is a part of a mutual entrepreneurial network that we were in. And he told me about how he had gone through the exact same thing like five or six years ago. And I can't even tell you the switch that turned in me. Because all of a sudden, I wasn't, I wasn't alone. This wasn't, this wasn't a Corey problem. And then the more people that I would share my story with, they're like, yeah, there was, you know, I had this fail and this happened, or I had this. And yeah, I also had an exit and didn't know how to deal with myself after. And I realized that like, we live in, in a high stakes game and, and the highs are really high, but the lows unfortunately are really low. One of the biggest things and the factors to me turning around was realizing that this was not an isolated event. A bunch of people had done it and pulled out of it. And, and for some reason, that alone kind of gave me hope that if I just kind of stuck through, that I too would pull out of it one day. And that just gave me kind of the courage to start building the building blocks to, to get myself out of the hole. I know you started to say, sorry, I interjected, but you said if somebody else is going through this, whether it's dealing with kind of a depression after an exit, which, you know, first world problems, but still. Yeah, it's, it's, first world problem, but it's, I'm it's telling you, it's a issue. problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But for other people, maybe 
also going through a hard time, whether it's just they don't know what they want to do. A hundred percent. They're lacking an identity. They don't know what business to start. What would you tell them? No. And, 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 and for me, like that was a big thing in that last year in the corporate job, like I was really unhappy. Like I was starting to realize I wasn't in the right place. Like it wasn't a fit. There was friction that was happening within me. And that's really, really hard. Like, and, and, and also a lot of the times you don't even know where it's coming from. Right. So I just had this unhappiness, but I didn't even know at that point that it was a professional unhappiness. It was just an unhappiness. And so again, I think that blind spot can be really dangerous for people. So if, if you feel like you're kind of in that, like, I, like, to be honest, one of the best things that I do now is journal. And not with thought, not with judgment. It's literally, it's like, I'm feeling this right now. I wonder why. I ask myself that question and then I'll write stuff out. And so I would encourage like anyone who's sitting there and being like, something just doesn't quite feel right. You don't know what to do about it yet. Just start to dig deep on the different facets, like bucket your life into certain areas, professional, personal, relationship, and really try to identify which bucket, because there's always a core issue. And again, it may not be like, obviously this podcast is geared towards people who, who want to go out on their own and entrepreneurs, but maybe it's just, you know, even in your own job, it's a facet of it. It's not the need to completely reinvent yourself, right? But getting really clear on who you are and what's important to you is something that I feel I left way too late in the game and I could have been a better entrepreneur for myself and for my team, if I just got really clear on that. But again, you know, I'm head down, run into a wall head first, right? <laughs> and then figure shit out yeah, after. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And I was talking to Reed Perez. He actually said the same thing in terms of people are so busy, right? Yeah. So, it, you know, you're going Hold through on, day you, to day. You interviewed Reed? Yeah, so I was talking yeah, to I Reed. can't be on this podcast <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Head set off. Head, dude, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> no, but he was saying, he was echoing the same thing you're saying right now is people don't spend enough time trying to figure out who they are, right? Because life's so busy. They don't ever take a step back, turn everything off. You know, meditation's a big thing, Huge right? Thing. So just spending time with yourself without any distraction, which is really hard for a lot of people nowadays. And, but, but to be honest, because of the always on mentality of an entrepreneur, that like you have to force yourself to take that time off. It's hard. Right. And me. it's hard. Yeah. Like, like I'll be sitting there and, and you know, yoga is another thing that I do. Right. Or I go to the gym and I find like those are great outlets, but I can't tell you how many times halfway through my workout, I'm like, oh, I should just get back to the when I know that that is the healthiest and the best use of that hour. I totally resonate, man. Right? Like I'm, I'm having a big issue recently. Like I, I'm a big reader. I used to read a lot more than I do now. And when I start reading now or I try to start reading, I'm so freaking ADD. I'm so distracted. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I just saw my phone vibrate. What do we got? Yeah. So it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard. But yeah. what, what do you recommend in terms of really being able to set, set time aside to, to spend with yourself? Oddly enough... It's a really easy thing to do, but it's a hard thing to honor. You just got to structure your day. Like I have a block in my calendar from 1130 to one o'clock every single day of the week. And that's my gym time. And the days that I don't go to the gym, that's my walk time. Not when it's cold as shit here in Canada, <laughs> which happens quite a bit. Um, but for me, that time is sacred. And my COO knows that. My entire team knows that they won't even infringe upon that space unless it's like a crucial meeting that needs to happen. But that's literally happened three times in the two years that I've been running the new company. What are you doing during that time? Like say, if you're going for a walk, are you listening to anything? Are you making... Sometimes I'm listening to music and sometimes I'm 
not. And I'm just like walking. I'm trying to figure out if you're consuming content, whether it be like an audio book. Sometimes I am. But then sometimes it's just quiet time. Right. And, and again, like I allow myself the flexibility of what that looks like, depending on the, like if I'm having a super stressful day and it's been all day of meetings and we're putting out client fires and working with all of that, then it tends to be either music or quiet time because that just kind of like calms me down, like sitting there and going and, and consuming content when the mind's been working and is churning you know, all morning, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So again, giving yourself that flexibility and the permission that while you need to set that structure for yourself, what happens within it, be flexible, be kind to yourself. You're having a crazy day, go do something really relaxing. If you're having a relaxing day, go and get your, get, get the blood going and just allowing yourself that permission to be kind to yourself, no matter what that looks like is huge. And a lesson that I've only learned in like the last like year or two. I don't, it sounds like you might have learned that from the same person I learned that from, Philip McKernan. Because maybe, maybe not. But he, I told Hold on. A, did you interview Philip on this too? I did. Oh my, I definitely <laughs> should have asked for who the hell is going to be on this podcast before I got involved. <laughs> no, but uh, it was, we were actually in the Bahamas for the Mastermind Talks yeah. trip. And, you know, I was talking to Philip. I was like, it was, I think it was the first morning there. And I was like, man, I haven't. Because I, I was on a serious kick of like fitness, nutrition. Yeah. I was up every morning at 5 a.m. I go to the Bahamas and whenever I travel, my routine gets thrown off. Of course. Crazily. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I was telling Philip that. He's like, oh, well, I just gave myself permission to, to take it easy this morning. I'm like, so he taught me to like be way less hard on myself. Yeah. I am. I beat the crap out of myself a lot. I am my own harshest critic. Like I said, I'm the worst boss I've ever had. I, to, to be honest... The work that that Philip does is so necessary for people like you and I. I wish I found Phil way earlier than I did. I found him kind of as I was getting out of my depression. There are a lot of kind of like, he's so good at kind of like the, just those like one-liner sound bites that just kind of like stick in that horrible Irish accent <laughs> that you can't even drink out of your head. But to be honest, like he's got four or five sayings that, that I find myself, like I will repeat to myself maybe once a week. So I wish I found him earlier, but the, the be kind to yourself was learned the hard way. It just took a lot of time and it took a lot of forgiveness. And that started during, during that year of the depression where I just really had to learn to be okay with myself because it was something that I don't think I ever was before that happened. You know, there was, there was a lot of issues from the past. Yep. So it sounds like you did a lot of work. You got your head in the right place, mm-hmm. got yourself surrounded by loving people mm-hmm. and got back kind of to who you are. So yep. once that happened, take us through how you started the new company, what made the idea come together yep. and also kind of the timeline. Like what was that break between the end of free flow and the yep. start of your new company? So the end of free flow officially was March 31st, 2014. And then I went on a trip to Japan in April And when I came home, that's kind of when the depression sort of hit. I did nothing that year except crush a lot, as I said. (laughs) And when I started feeling a little bit better, I took on like four or five kind of like coaching clients. They were all people that were in an industry related to mine who were at a, a smaller scale. So I knew kind of where they were and how to get to the next level. And I started just doing some, some side coaching and consulting for them. And there was one business in particular where I just kind of became fast friends with the guy. And there was a lot of potential in his business, but 
his bit like it, it was it was standard where someone gets into a position because they know how to like code a website or they know how to do something, but they don't know how to run a business. And his business was in dire trouble. I didn't know how bad it was when we first got involved. But I, I, I consulted with him for, I think, nine months, along with a couple of other clients, and started to feel a little bit better and decided that I wanted to get back in the game, but I didn't want to do it full time yet. So him and I had structured a deal where essentially I was going to take part equity within his business. I was going to sit there two days a week, act as managing director. I was going to clean everything up and then everything kind of like client facing production, stuff like that was going to be his, but the biz admin was going to be my side of things. Ended up getting involved in the business, you know, was looking at a certain set of books throughout the entire consulting period. And then once we got involved and I got, I got full access to the books, you know, he hadn't paid taxes in a bunch of years. He was behind paying his employees. When I walked in the door, the two key employees were ready to hand in a resignation and had both said, we were just waiting till you got here to see if it was going to be different. And so it really started as a turnaround. And again, you think starting off with, with the business already like a broken one, but one already there, you think it's going to be easier. And again, you don't know what you don't know, right? And just because you've been successful before doesn't mean you know what you're getting yeah. yourself did you, into did you again. Did you put any cash into this business at all? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, it was... I. I had taken a very small salary Got and it. then equity as so, compensation. So less risk. And yeah. Like, so, okay. so so less risk. But at the end of the day, you know, and, and this is where you got to choose your partners carefully because he had signed a statement with me saying that there was no pre-existing debt within the business before I got involved because the second your name gets put on it, like the liability of the company now becomes my liability. And he signed and it was a fraudulent contract. And what we ended up having to do was we really realized how big the problem was when there wasn't enough money in the business for me to turn it around. And so him and I sat down and we talked. And at that point, you know, he was focusing on one or two services. And he knew that I had always dealt with kind of like, or I'd evolved into a company that was doing a larger service scope. And I told him that we needed more money in the business and then went out and kind of leveraged one of my contacts brought them on board. He knew it was going to be a change more into kind of like an agency than a specific service house. And we talked about that, went for a bunch of walks in the park and and he was like, all right, let's do it. And the second that we got that $50,000 deposit and it hit the bank account, it was garnished completely by the government. Jeez. Uh, and that's when we, that's when I started to see the truth of okay, like this guy has not been paying taxes. So when you were going on the walk in the park with this guy, you hadn't known any of this yet. I didn't. Did? I didn't know it yet. Oh, okay. The the financials that I was working with were troublesome, but were fixable. Got it. And then we realized though, like we didn't understand all of the debt. Again, who doesn't pay taxes for five years? <laughs> right. Like. <laughs> right. Choose your partners carefully. <laughs> Were there any red flags, like looking back on this guy? Looking back on it, there were a thousand red flags. Okay. So why did you ignore those? So the reason why I ignored it and the reason why I particularly gravitated towards him was he was on the brink of a depression and he was starting to get anxiety attacks. So you could relate. And I built this story in my head that perhaps I went through what I did so that I could could help help him avoid it. And, and to be honest, like even over the, like I hung in with him way too long. He's no longer with the business. He exited on his own, tried to steal the business from me as a thank you. But my COO from day one was like, we need to fire him. And I was like, it's never going to happen. Learn to work with him. And I stuck by him and so many red flags, like from the day where he signed the agreement saying there was no pre-existing debt, he put himself before me. He was actually opening me up 
to a huge amount of risk and he was okay doing That's it. Crazy. And when I look yeah. back at it, I remember when I said, Hey, here's this, read it and sign it. He got up and he went for a walk. And cause he was like, yeah. you know, he was yeah. processing yeah. and he made the conscious decision at that moment. I'm going to do it to lie. Yeah. Right. I need out. He can help me get out. And I don't care if this puts him in a world of trouble. And so we had that deposit garnished. That kind of started to show how bad things were. The books that we had had from a revenue or an accounts receivable standpoint, he had created duplicate invoices. And a lot of the work that was that was in there, the AR was like so aged, it was it was bad debt at that point. Like there was no way that it was recoverable. So the you know, the revenues were inflated, the losses were hidden. There were so many things along the way. As I was trying to fix the business, and we sometimes we had to take some hard stances with his clients and say, Hey, he's been undercharging you. He didn't know the market value. We're upping our price. And obviously clients aren't happy in that state, but we had to do what was right for the business. And then I would find out that he's sitting there and when when the client would complain with him because he had a relationship, you know, he'd be throwing me under the bus. Bad mouth you yeah. He's and making us raise the prices. Exactly. I wish this wasn't happening to you and all that. And and like him and I actually had a couple of talks where I remember I took him outside one day, not not to fight him, but like but I looked at him. I'm just like, I know you're doing this, 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 and this, and you're undermining what we're trying to do. And I'm trying trying to fix your business and trying to get this back on track. So looking back, there were so many signs, but I was blinded by my by my want and my need to help someone who was on the brink of going through what I went through, which was the worst experience of my entire life. So outside of choosing your partners carefully, what's going to be the biggest like takeaway and learning lesson for you in that experience? As painful as it is. No. So like I said, no longer with the business. He ended up we had to top grade him and move him around a lot because he was not even a great employee. And he ended up leaving and trying to steal a bunch of clients and employees when I was away traveling. So for me, it would be my advice in terms of choosing a partner is do your due diligence. It's a business relationship. Don't let the personal or the emotional side and a lot of people go into business with their friends right. for the wrong fucking reason, <laughs> yeah. right? And so do your due diligence. Make sure that when when you partner with someone that there is an equal contribution and a value. There's something that you provide that they don't. There's something they provide that you don't. That wasn't true. Like I said, not only was he not a partner, he was actually one of the more dysfunctional employees that we had. And so that would be it. Do your due diligence, know who you're getting into bed with, and make sure that there is an equal value contribution that's made. Because, you know, I think on both sides, you know, there was a resentment where when we took the company, turned it around, you know, it was doing about 300000 a year, maybe three fifty, and losing money. And within 11 months, we had turned it into a seven-figure business that was that was profitable. Awesome, yeah. You would think that that would make someone happy, but I think he almost resented that I could do something that he wouldn't. And you'd see that with the constant undermining, right? And so just be, be careful. Like partnership is like marriage. You know, don't, don't partner up with the first person that's willing to let you feel some stuff up over the shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? No, that's a good point. What, so where's the business at now? 
So the business is doing well. I feel like we're really positioned to help disrupt what I think is a broken agency model. You know, my previous agency, we were always kind of like one spoke in a larger wheel. What we've done here is we've really diversified the service bases so that we can handle everything from initial market research all the way through to campaign retrospectives. And and what this allows us to do is it removes the multi-vendor agency model. So you're not getting kind of, you know, markup upon markup upon markup, which creates this inflated budget for the clients. You can have a variety of great companies, but that doesn't mean that they're always going to work together well. And so it eliminates that. It allows us to move faster. And since we own a cam- like a digital campaign, we don't do anything traditional, but because we own a digital campaign from start to finish, like we're willing to be tied to results. Because if something's happening along the way, we can't blame the advertising team or we can't blame the branding team. (laughs) Like we're all of that, right? So uh, I I think like the sales cycle literally has gone from like six months to like six days. Like when we sit down and and, and explain our position, it's a pain point that every client feels. And so right place, right time. You know, there's been growing pains. You know, it has not been anywhere. Like I figured... based on previous success, this was going to be super simple. <laughs> Again, it's amazing how many times my thinking is just complete, but it, it, it allows me to bullshit my way into scenarios, yeah. right? So, but, you know, we, we faced some growth, which caused problems. We didn't have the right team members to start. It's a very different business managing as broad as a service scope because you're getting very different people. Like, like your devs are a culture completely separate from your creatives and trying to get them to play together. Like I can understand why they were broken apart before. And I feel like I've created like this madhouse trying to bring them all in. But when we get it right, like the results are something I'm extremely proud of. You know, we're well into seven figures. You know, we've been profitable since inception, which is a really beautiful feeling. You know, I think we're poised for great things. This year, we're focusing on culture and systems and process. You know, doing that same thing. It was a different problem starting this because I had a reputation. And so the business came fast and it came easy. But then what I found was we didn't have the foundation, we didn't have the systems, we didn't have the process. And that's okay when you're starting up. But now that we're at the level that we are, we need kind of, we need that foundation for the business to be able to take more and more and more weight. We can't sit there and just firefight or be agile all day long. Like we, we, that component always exists within an agency to make a client happy, but we really need to kind of like get that culture in place, get the systems and process. So when we look at another year of growth, the business can maintain it because we, we did grow to a point where, again, it was kind of like one in, one out just because we didn't have the right business model set. Got it. Got yeah. it. So that kind of brings us up to speed, right? Up to date. Yeah. So out of all of the struggles along your journey, all the trials, tribulations, the successes, right? Yeah. What, if you had to pinpoint one, I guess, moment in time or one thing that happened to you that makes you say like, man, I wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened. What is that moment? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> I got to be honest, when things were not working out at the beginning, I had the support of two people, my girlfriend at the time and my dad, and them looking at me and just basically saying, you've been through a lot worse, like you can do this. It was the gasp of air that I needed just so that I could get back to the surface. 
and that was right at the tipping point where I was like, like the conversation was like, I'm packing up. Like I failed at this. I had given myself two years to make this work. If I wasn't, then I was going to try to parlay that experience well on a, on a resume and go and get a job again. That, this is two months into your first or two years into two your years, first business. Two years into the first business. And that moment was really the, if this was easy, everyone would be fucking doing it. And again, it was that reminder that I've been through worse. It was that reminder that it's like it always when you want to give up, it's literally just on the other side. I was about to say that. It's, you... and, and I know that sounds cliche, but that has been true a hundred. Every time I've thrown my hands in the air and say, fuck it, I'm done. Like within a week, I'm like, how could I ever say that? <laughs> like it's, it's just the way that it works. Yeah. You even said what three years in is like when the business really took off. If you yeah. quit at year two. Yeah. Who knows where you'd be right now, right? I'd probably be in a job miserable, right? So very thankful that support network and making sure that you have people that are going to back you up, not just in the good times, because what I've really found is the amount of people that are around when things are going well, uh, you can't even keep track of it. But when I was down, there were a few people. And so for me, it's not about it's not about having the biggest network or the biggest crew possible. It's about having a couple of people that you know have you in good times and bad, and and you if you have that, you have a rich life, and you all you 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 are positioned for success on a very difficult road at times. So fail on is the mantra yeah. we live by here, and I love that one of your core values is fail forward. Yeah, because it's it's perfect, and I'm so glad you're able to come on and share some of these stories. But the idea is if you're not failing, you're not growing, right? 100%. So how do you force yourself, even on a day-to-day basis, just in your life, to get out of your comfort zone? I think I'm actually horribly uncomfortable in my comfort zone at this point. It's something that you definitely need to learn to kind of like push yourself. I remember all the excuses when I was first starting to keep me in my comfort zone. I'm like, I won't do that today. I'll do it tomorrow. And it was just a delay to make sure that I wasn't outside of my comfort zone. But now I get really uncomfortable sitting there and be like, hmm, everything's running really smooth. <laughs> sure. I need to fuck shit up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You gotta sabotage it somehow. Yeah, and, and, and whether that's, you know, trying out a new model or bringing on a new service scope or, or you know, sitting here and getting out of my comfort zone and supporting my buddy on a podcast. You know, this is, again, the imposter syndrome is still very strong. Self-promotion is not something I do well. I like my work to speak for itself and I like my clients to speak for me. And, you know, could I have done better probably if I was a little more self-promotion-y? 100%. But, you know, it this this was an experience that I feel that people needed to hear about. I always assumed when you looked at a successful entrepreneur that it was so easy and they worked a couple hours a day and it just came naturally. It's all you hear about, right? No, it's all you hear about. And what you don't understand is that overnight success story was 10 years in the making. You just hear about it when it's big. You don't hear about the blood, sweat, and the tears, and, and the constant times that they almost gave up. And and as as my you know network with entrepreneurs and colleagues have grown, like you've you realize there's not a single person that got it easy, except for maybe Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I just felt like this again, really out of my comfort zone. But I feel it was a message that people needed to hear. I love the premise of this because I think it gives a realness. And, and a true picture of what an entrepreneurial life is like. And th- like I said, like there's, I wouldn't change it for anything. I've traveled the world. I've seen things I never thought I'd be able to see. I've been able to carve out you know, good time for myself instead of just trading my time for two to three weeks vacation a year. I've met some fantastic people and I'm grateful. And all of that is sponsored by 
you know, an entrepreneurial lifestyle. So, you know, I love this. I, I love what you're doing here. And it's a message people need to hear because it's not easy, but it's worth it. What's failure mean to you? Failure means at this point, learning. Failure used to mean crawl into your bed and figure out what the hell is wrong with you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, but for, for me, it's like, again, it's one of those things like we screw something up and my first question is like, okay, what did we learn from it and what are we doing next? And that's it. And if, the, if that vernacular is not what follows, hey, we made a mistake, then the meeting doesn't happen until the vernacular changes because it's okay. It's okay to fail. Nobody gets it right all the time. So if there's somebody right now out there that, they know they want to start a business. They don't know what to start. Or maybe they're looking for the perfect business idea, which we know doesn't exist, right? But if they came to you... If you, you find that, let me know. Yeah. If they came to you and said, how the hell do I get started? What do I need to do? Just tell me. What's one action item or directive that you could give them at least as step one? So the first thing that I would do is figure out... And, and, and again, this is something I, I did so poorly. Figure out the type of, of lifestyle you want first. You can have a lifestyle business that gives you all of the freedom that you want, that allows you to be location independent, but there's most likely going to be certain sacrifices that come with that. Yeah. You want a lifestyle business, it's going to be hard to build a $100 million empire. Exactly. But so, to make a couple hundred grand a year, but if you're, if you're sitting there and you're traveling the world half the year and you're working from where you want to and you're pulling in $150,000, $200,000 a year, and I'm not talking revenue, make yeah. sure that that's your yeah. take home no, pay, right. then like, hell, like that's a life most people would sign up for. There's nothing wrong with that. And for me, it was just like, I need to build an empire. And what I realize now is it's the lifestyle that's the most important thing. Like, I want to go see my niece and my nephew. I want to be able to hang out with my parents at least once a week. You know, I want to see my friends at lunch, all things that I could not do in my last job. And I've made sacrifices, right? Like, I've clearly laid out in the vivid vision of our company, we're not aspiring to be, you know, a thousand client, nine figure agency. It's just not what I want. But this is something that I like, I just learned in like, in the last like year or two and I'm still getting coaching from some of my friends like how did you shape it like just so for me it's get clear right because the idea of only going to a business for something that you love so it doesn't feel like work is such horseshit if that happens awesome blessed position but if you're going to wait for that then enjoy your job so for me figuring out the type of lifestyle that you want and then figuring out what type of businesses would fit that and then from there, figuring out what skill sets you have that would lend well to one of those business models. And then figuring out from there what your first step would be. That's the four-step sequence. But you got to do it in that order. And it actually starts at the end game, not how do I take my first step. Reverse engineer that. And then that way you make sure that your first step is the one aiming you towards the right like the, the right goalpost. Love it. That's actually, I hope you guys are paying attention because that's a step-by-step directive and in, in getting started and getting out of a situation that maybe you're not so happy in. Absolutely. Who's had the single most profound impact on your life? If you had to name one person, yeah, so I'll, I'm, I'll allow two if you I'm, need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name two because <laughs> okay. I, do well, I, I don't do well with rules. <laughs> then I'm going to name three. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, honestly, you know, I don't get, I, like, I don't idolize or get starstruck by kind of like celebrities or big business icons or anything like that. But a dude that, that impresses me on a level that's beyond belief is Richard Branson. And I know that seems like it's an easy answer, but the reality is is he is involved in like 400 different businesses. He's done, I think it's eight 
billion dollar companies, which no person on the planet has done. Yeah, it's nuts. Like you're good at telecom or you're a real estate tycoon and everyone has their one spot. He's duplicated it yeah, it's crazy. eight times. And his lifestyle is amazing. Like dude sits there with his two personal assistants for an hour and a half in the morning. That's his business day. And then he goes out and he plays. So I feel like he got the model right in a way that nobody else has been able to do it. And and that might not be the end game, but like that type of lifestyle is something that I honor and I value, which is why I look just up to him. Able, not necessarily the $8 billion companies, but just not necessarily even that. to design your life in the way he has. Just the way that he has. He has a ton of fun with what he's doing. He spends his time the way that he wants to spend, whether that's work or whether it's play. And as long as you're always in alignment with what you want to be doing, you're going to be a happy person at the end of the day. So again, just based on that, like it's not the dollar amount. It's not the fact that he's, you know, one of the billionaires in the world. It's really how he was able to create his life with his business. I feel that's something that entrepreneurs fail at. You either have a good life and your business is shit or you have a wicked business and your life is shit. <laughs> right. So uh, so that would be that. And then to be honest, I think I think the person in my personal life that kind of impacted me the most was my best friend that I had met in my group home. He ended up passing away in 2000, November 6, 2000, which was really hard to kind of go through. But he was... Like you have the family that you're born into, and I really feel like like the universe kind of screwed it up because him and I were supposed to be brothers, and we just missed. But he was instrumental at kind of giving me the comfort zone to kind of turn myself around. So that's when I was still very rebellious. I was getting in trouble. I had aid walled from the group home. I had spent time in jail, and he was kind of the anchor that really kind of like settled me down and put me what was then a 20 year journey. But he like the first step towards me being where I am today happened when I met Alex. And so eternally grateful and and, and in all honesty, you know, his death and his passing away was a reminder of how short and how lucky this thing is. And and so for me it's that's part of the hustle, right? Like you just don't know. Right. So get it done. Yeah. Right. No, it's that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. I know it's not easy to yeah, reflect on that I, stuff I just a lot. want people to know that this shit is not easy. Like life is not easy. It's full of troubles. It's it's full of trials. It's full of failures. But if you got the right people, everything is manageable. Everything is doable. And you just you just got to kind of you just got to keep the faith in yourself. And if you can do that, trust me, you'll get past everything. Yeah. So looking forward for you. What's what's next on the horizon? Obviously, you're building your your company. But what are you what are you most excited about right now? I'm really excited. So, you know, it's one of those things that I've always had a very different approach to what I was doing in this business. I'm excited because we're disrupting an an industry that's ripe for disruption, but I'm also building the business the way that I want to. And and arguably I failed in the first couple of years when you're starting something up and you're turning something around, like I'm just wired to be in the trenches and and getting shit done. You know, we've got the term GSD in, in our company, right? It's a GSD day, like just get shit done. But it's all with an end goal of me actually kind of stepping back from the day to day. My COO was fantastic, putting her more on the front lines, me moving more into an advisory. And so I can work on, you know, other pillars of what I envision, you know, kind of like the blue moon universe to look like over time. It's not just about the agency. We've got a couple of plans. We've got like a venture arm. There's a bunch of things that we're doing. And this is allowing me, as I was saying before, to play where I want to play. 
It's giving me the freedom to play when I want to play. And so I'm just really excited that all of these lessons have not been lost on me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm actually, you know, doing what I coach my, my team to do, which is fail forward. And I'm just getting, yes, yes. I love it. Yeah. No, I I, I couldn't agree more, man. And I love that. Like I said, one of your core values is fail forward because it embodies what we believe here with fail on. So I'm going to respect your time though. We're running about an hour 15. So I'll let you run, man. But thank you so much for for sitting down and chatting. I know you don't do it often. I don't. My pleasure, though. My (laughs) pleasure. Love what you're doing here. Thanks, man. Till next time. Cheers. All right. So you can find Corey through email at Corey at BlueMoon.Digital. That's Corey at BlueMoon.Digital. And of course, all the links and resources Corey and I discussed, including more information on his company, can be found at the page created especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash zero. One nine, and keep an eye out for the next episode to follow this one. We'll be sitting down with a brilliant marketing mind in Toronto, Dev Basu. Dev is the founder of Powered by Search, Canada's fastest growing digital agency. He's absolutely crushing it. And we sit down in his beautiful office space in Toronto to go deep into his journey. And if you're interested in starting a business from scratch, bootstrapped, this is definitely an episode you don't want to miss. And as I continue to build this project to fail on with the simple goal of getting people to once and for all decide that they're going to fail their way to creating an inspired life. If you could do one thing to support the cause, I'd be really grateful. When you click the subscribe button and leave a rating and quick review, this allows the podcast simply to be visible to more people. To rate and review the podcast really easy, just go to failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.